the conversation that a website has with Google, I argue, is as important as the conversation we have with users. You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today we're talking about the power of the SEO search channel in our marketing and sales world. The reality that Google has put out a set of best practices and website building and structure that creates what our guest today calls Google's perfect world and what this means to the rest of us. To help us, we have with us Jeff Atkinson, founder and CEO of Huckabye. Jeff, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thanks, Chad. It's great to be here. So we always kick it off with, you know, an oddball question so people get a little bit better sense of, of who you are as a human being and a person. They rotate all around the board, but it just depends whatever strikes me. For some reason, last night as I was typing up our, our questions and getting this ready, curious about the last book, movie, or event you attended that resonated with you and why? Good question. I think, let's see. You know, I was impressed when I went to uh, the Silicon Slopes event here in Utah. Silicon Slopes is this sort of startup organization that has really taken off. And there was something like 50,000 people there. And wow. I'm in a little bit of a bubble up here in Park City, although we get down there quite a bit now to talk to companies. But just to see the size of these businesses, like the Qualtrics of the world and Domo and Plural site, and we've you know gone and seen their offices too as we sell into these companies. Kind of blew me away and inspired me that you know real real business was getting generated in Utah, <laughs> and uh, software is a thing here. And yeah, I'd say that really got me fired up to to grow Huckabye into something special. Yeah, I mean, you guys with Plural site. I mean, you you named some of the big ones there. Adobe's got a massive presence there. I mean, it's really become. I, I like Silicon Slopes, maybe because I'm a snowboarder, but I, I like I like that phrasing better than the Valley because it just uh, yeah. it seems much more in touch with nature and reality than some of the stuff you run into uh, on the coast. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think you know one of the things that is happening in Utah is that there's a lot of confidence growing and. There is still a little bit of, um, it, there's a little bit of the valley creeping in here, I think, but it's still different. You know, um, valuations are very high. VCs are very interested in Utah, but we do have the mountains right behind us. So wherever you live, it's like 10 minutes away to escape and go snowboarding or mountain biking or whatever your, your fix is. And that kind of chills everybody out. <laughs> definitely does. It definitely does. All right. So now for our listeners, you mentioned it, but let's give them a little bit more context around Huckabye. What do you guys do? How to get started? Give us, give us the story there. Yeah, for sure. So Huckabye is a soft SEO software platform. The idea sort of my background comes from Overstock, which is a Utah company. I was their SVP of marketing. We had this sort of great SEO story going from a channel of zero to a channel of about 300 million. And so I was kind of on the front lines of watching a really big growth curve in SEO and saw what worked and what doesn't work. And honestly, I just saw a big gap, a big technology gap. The conversation that a website has with Google, I argue, is as important as the conversation we have with users. And yet we spend so much more time and money on the user experience and what that looks like 
and kind of ignore what Google's experience is when their bot comes and crawls a website. And so we kind of handle that conversation. There's a technical gap and not many companies do it well. Not many companies have the in-house resources to do it well. And so we've built a product that optimizes your conversation with Google so that you get sort of the, the search rankings and organic search traffic that you deserve. And yeah, so I started it about five years ago as a B2C site, actually. It was a terrible idea. It was basically <laughs> like a, it was an affiliate site. It was a comparison shopping engine plus coupons, and it was a total SEO play, but Google didn't like affiliate sites anymore. And so we were totally just swimming upstream. Fortunately, though, we had built some really cool SEO automation technology that people that knew Huckabye wanted to start licensing. And so we pivoted about two and a half, three years ago into a software company, not even knowing the value of a software company and that this recurring revenue thing was amazing and the valuations were amazing. So it was really kind of blind luck that we ended up here. But we, we really, our product really resonated early and we sold into some really big companies and, and filled this gap for them like SAP and Salesforce and Pluralsight. And uh, yeah, it's sort of taking off now, which is really exciting. And so how, how big is Huckabye? How many, what's the size of the organization right now? We're about 15 employees. Um, we're in the midst of, of going through a seed round of funding right now. So I'd expect that to grow pretty significantly in the back half of the year. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. Okay. And so was the passion for this organic search channel and, and especially going from B2C to B2B, was that because of the success at, at Overstock or is there something about it that just, you know, trips the trigger? What, what is it about this that makes you so passionate? About it? <laughs> I wouldn't say, I wouldn't maybe use passion as the reason that I did. <laughs> I think it was more a desperate claw towards revenue and it was the easiest path towards revenue. And it really was sort of blind luck. I do have a passion, though, for what I call sort of technology-driven marketing, which SEO is probably the king of, where you're doing things through technology to drive revenue, sales leads, whatever your core metrics are. I've always found that investments in technology have the highest ROI versus any sort of like paid media channel. And so I do have a passion about that. I love technology. Product is my favorite part of my, my job is working on product and making the product better. I'm not a developer, but... That's that is the passion that I have, and and I think you can see that come through with the the growth that our customers experience and and how much they get out of the the software. Well, okay, so we've got blind luck and need for revenue, so we all got to pay a bill, <laughs> and then and then a passion. Yep. Right? It's a it's a powerful combination if you can channel it correctly, right? And a lot of people out there, I mean, I forget, I don't know the latest stats, but so many organizations fail that to find ones, you know, find that niche where you actually have some passion and can combine that with something that the market needs. Uh, it gives you a, a nice place to sit, especially when you're founded and, and based out of Park City, Utah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's kind of the perfect storm? I would say, though, that there's some parts of the business that I don't have a passion for. And so you <laughs> have to, uh, you got to find people and in an early stage startup. You wear a lot of hats as the CEO and you have to do those things. And especially now that we're growing, it's nice to have really strong people that can, that can pick me up in those areas and pick up Huckabye in those areas. But yeah, it was a great, it was a perfect storm. You know, it kind of, um, has come together and, uh, we got a lot of work ahead of us, but it's, it's fun. It's, it's starting to get fun now. And, uh, that's always a really good thing when you're having fun and growing. 
Perfect. So what, so as we were prepping, you mentioned the difference between the science and art of mastering this SEO channel. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Help me understand kind of, cause I'll be, I'll be the first to admit I, having, I started my career in marketing and then jumped to the dark side of sales. And I know what SEO is and I know about the conversations with Google and stuff, but I would say my understanding is very minimal. So help me understand what the difference between the science and the art of it is. Yeah. First off, I wouldn't say sales is the dark side. Sales is what pays all the bills and drives the <laughs> revenue. So yeah, um, I would that say that too. I didn't want to offend our marketing listeners. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that is uh, that is probably the most critical channel. And marketing is just a, a way to drive sales and a way to enable sales. But yeah, the art and science of SEO. So the art of SEO is is what I sort of think of when you talk to agencies. So this this industry is dominated by us by services, which is really strange in my opinion, because it's a technical problem. So a lot of agencies, a lot of consultants that are advising you to do certain things. And oftentimes they're advising you without really the facts at play. So they're advising based on what used to work or what worked for them in the past, very little reliance on science. So the art of SEO would be like good content writing, having things go viral to get backlinks. The science of SEO is actual the technical conversation that you have with Google, which we rely heavily on. We believe in the science of SEO. I think, you know, I have a bit of a track record through my overstock experience of actually having grown something really significantly and knowing what it takes to, to do that. And it was really science-based. And I think there's a little too much art in the, in the SEO world, which is what creates a lot of people thinking that it's a black box and that it's this really scary task. And there's a lot of just sort of bad connotations with SEO that I've, <laughs> I've come across anyways. Everybody kind of is like, oh man, I don't want to work on that. But it's really not that bad. If you lean on the science side, it exposes what's true, what actually works. And it, it's sort of refreshing because you, there are a lot of snake oil salesmen out there in the STO world. And so when you talk the science and you actually show people what you're going to do for them technically, and they understand the technical concepts, then it's really, uh, I think for a lot of our customers, it's a relief because they now can actually get their hands around SEO and understand it and understand what they're doing to make, make it better for their company. So uh, that's what I mean by the science. It's really the technical conversation with Google the art side, we definitely rely less on than your typical SEO approach. Um, and I think that's refreshing for our customers. And so let's talk about this this conversation with Google, right? Google's perfect world. I know with, with some of the stuff that we passed back and forth, you kind of provided some outline. But for our listeners, I, I'm not sure everybody would understand exactly what you say when the bots come in and crawl on the site. What's it looking for? What does it mean to have that conversation? Kind of illustrate that for us a little bit. Yeah, so... We talk a lot at Huckabye about what is Google's perfect world. What would a website look like if it was built for Google and not for humans? And there's a few things that fall into this category. So one of the things they don't like is they don't like these sort of complicated front-end coding languages that create dynamic content because it makes it very hard for them to crawl and understand. So they like sites that are just flat HTML. I always use Wikipedia as a great example of Google's perfect world. Flat HTML, very lots of content, easy for them to crawl. The pages load instantly, so page speed is another thing that falls into their perfect world. If they're just at a site and waiting for the site to load all the time, they're not going to crawl everything. They're going to get 10 20% down a page and leave. They just sort of get frustrated because it's like being at home, with the, you know, not at home and the lights are on, and, and they're just burning energy waiting for the site. So flat HTML is an example 
really fast page speed is an example of Google's perfect world. And probably the biggest one is their, the language that they prefer to speak to a website in. And so there's a language called structured data markup. That is the language that they prefer to speak to a website. And so you can structure data markup. You can mark up almost anything um, that's on a page. So this is a person, this is a place, this is a thing, this is a software application, this is a product, these are reviews. And you can, because it's structured, it's the same across all sites and they get a much easier, have a much easier time understanding each and every site if it has this language layered on top of it. And so the first thing that we do as a company is we automate the language of structured data markup so that any given website can talk to Google authoritatively and tell them all the information that they want to tell them. When you do that, you know, really great things happen because they start understanding more and more what you have going on. And so let's talk about those outcomes. What, because we want to make it, I mean, a lot of people are probably going, wow, that's way above my pay grade um, or <laughs> deep, deeper than I want to go. Right. And, and so when we talk about the outcomes, what kind of impact, if you can, if you can use your platform or you have a flat HTML site or whatever, and Google can, can speak effectively, you can have an effective conversation with Google. What kind of outcomes would a company be expecting to see where the individuals in say the marketing and sales teams, what would they see? Yeah to know that it's being effective? Well, let's use an example. Concur is a great example of a customer of ours. They get an enormous amount of their sales pipeline through organic search. It's something like almost 75%, I think. It's a very high percentage. Nice. And we, we moved the needle for them 90%. So we grew that channel by 90% in like six months. So think about what that does. That's feeding over like 400 account executives to have 90% more inbound leads than you did six months earlier, you know, what's the impact on a sales organization of that? That's pretty dramatic. Um, Absolutely. The average customer and our customers do lean a little bit more towards the enterprise, although we work toward, work with companies of all sizes. Our average customer after 12 months grows their organic search channel by 62%. And that's, that's a big number. Um, you take any, you know, organic search usually is the number one new customer acquisition channel for companies. So to grow at 62% in a year, that's going to have a pretty fundamental revenue and business impact on a company. What company doesn't want more organic search traffic that you know, <laughs> qualifies into really good leads? You know, I've, I've, I'm naming one. So whether it's e-commerce or it's software, or it's B2B sales, it can really move the needle. And the quality, I think the biggest thing is the quality of the traffic. So organic search traffic is typically very qualified. It converts at about 2x the rate of any paid channel. So the business impact ends up actually being greater than the traffic impact because the, the people flowing through the site are just way more qualified. So yeah, pretty, pretty solid revenue impact with our customers today. Nice. And so, I mean, you're almost getting to the point where, you know, the rainbows and unicorns of the salespeople believing that marketing should be providing, you know, 75% of their leads or better is actually a reality in some of those cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when I look at really successful unicorns and companies that are growing, they typically now are in that marketing phase where they're getting the majority of their sales leads via marketing because Early on, you can have a great sales staff and you can have all the BDRs in the world and you can get away with, you know, building a pretty big company. But at a certain point, that just doesn't scale anymore. You've talked, you know, you've reached out, you've emailed enough people, you've, you know, you've sort of exhausted your networks and there has to be a more scalable way. And by 
this point, most companies have invested in marketing. So they're doing paid search, they're doing email marketing, but they, again, they run into scale issues because it starts getting too expensive. Competitors get in the mix. You can only spend so much at a certain point, it turns, goes into the red. And so organic search ends up being sort of a later in life for a software company anyways, or a B2B company, uh, something that happens to them later in life, realizing how important it is. If you think of an e-commerce company like an Overstock or Amazon, it's necessary right out of the gate because you don't have the margins of a B2B. You got to scrap for every penny. And so they're on to SEO from the startup stage on, whereas software or B2B, it kind of hits a little bit later in the life cycle. But once it does hit in the the really smart CMOs and, and VPs of marketing that get organic search, they're the ones that create this engine through organic search that drives an enormous amount of sales volume and sales velocity. So that's the success stories that I see. It's pretty rare for a company to get really, really big without doing it because it does end up being the most scalable channel to drive inbound leads. Yeah. And it's, and it's one that, that you can, you can tweak over time. It's easier. It's easier to adjust SEO than it is to adjust an entire, you know, global marketing department or global sales force, right? The ability to respond to the trends in the market uh, or changes in, you know, search behavior. uh, The response time is just that much faster. Yeah, for sure. And I think the biggest thing that I think about is just the pure scale of it. You never like high five each other and say, we're done with SEO. (laughs) (laughs) It's like eBay is still working on SEO. Amazon's still working on SEO. And they, those SEO built those companies into what they are today. So it just keeps going and and you get a concur. That's a massive player. You get to their size and you add 62% on or 90% on top of that. That is a really big win that pretty much is not accomplishable in any other channel. Right. Yeah. I mean, those are massive numbers. We're we're not talking, we're not talking dropping the bucket for sure. So when you look at, when you look at, you know, all right, Google's perfect world and, and SEO is the, it's, you know, like you said, you're never done. What's the next thing on the frontier of organic search? What are you, what are you seeing is the big thing around the corner that companies or people should be aware of? Voice search. Voice search is becoming a thing. So whether people are comfortable today, people are starting to get comfortable purchasing things via voice search. So they might be comfortable booking a movie ticket, or they might be comfortable getting directions. People are starting to get comfortable setting appointments. And that's just going to get better and better, especially as I don't think voice search is, is from a user perspective, like how it is to interact with voice search is good enough for really the the market to completely sort of flip over like it did from, you know, desktop to mobile, for example, in the search world, that was a really big flip that happened as soon as mobile phones got faster and the connections got faster and you could actually browse the internet instead of like hunting and pecking on your home pilot. (laughs) Um, It just flipped all of a sudden. And I think that's going to happen with voice search. So voice search is extremely important. Fortunately for us, voice search is completely powered by structured data, which is amazing. And if you think about voice search, the unique thing is that when you search online or on your desktop or mobile phone, you get 10 blue links back. When you do a voice search, you just get one result back. And so it's sort of a winner takes all type situation. And I think companies really have to start optimizing for it, whether or not, you know, you're comfortable researching, you know, software products or whatever it is that through voice search today, you might not, 
but in two years, pretty good chance you will. In five years, there's a really good chance. So that's that's the the piece that I think is upcoming that's really important to be thinking about. I mean, I I'm I'm with you. I see people talking to their phones like that all the time, and I still just I don't know. Maybe I maybe because I come from a time when phones had cords and. Hey, I'm the same way. I don't I don't feel comfortable doing it at all. We have Google devices, like these Google Home devices in our offices that we I sort of force myself to use because um I'm just not comfortable doing it yet. And that's where I think that sort of user interaction is lacking. I don't think it's good enough yet for someone like you and me to start being like, wow, that was an incredible experience. You know, I just bought the perfect product that I wanted at a really low price and I didn't have to open my desktop. And I didn't even have to look at my computer and I know I got the best price and I'm really happy. Like that experience isn't there yet, but Google's working on it. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's a fulfillment side of it, right? There's also a human element in voice. Like I, I have caught myself. I mean, I've used, you know, Siri and the Google assistant both. And I had Alexa in the house for a while until I got, you know, paranoid one night. Anyway, the different story. (laughs) Um, but, but literally I think for me, and I'm not an easily flappable individual, right? Like it takes a lot for me to be embarrassed, but for me to be sitting there screaming at my phone, that it's not understanding what I'm looking for is, is infuriating. And then it's also extremely vulnerable because you're trying to get something done. And then all of a sudden you become aware of people around you hearing you. So it mm-hmm. changed the way you talk, or at least for me, it did. It changed the way I would talk to the phone or the phrasing I would use. And I was just in a buddy's car and he was trying to use the voice to have, you know, the Bluetooth, the phone dial his, uh, his wife. And she's got a unique pronunciation of her name. And he has to like, he has to pronounce it the way the car wants it to be said mm-hmm. rather than vice versa. And so I think you're right. Yeah. There's friction there in terms of, how do you get the experience if I just bought something? But also there's that human element of you're going to have to make that voice stuff pretty simple. I mean, we all talk slightly differently depending on where you come from or phraseology or things like that. The linguistic challenge I think is, is a fascinating one. I think it goes back probably back to the fact yeah. that English majors in undergrad, but I would love it to, fascinating. That, I would love to see that come to fruition. I just, I'm going to, I'm going to own it right now and say, I'm not going to be one of the early adopters. <laughs> No, I'm not either. I think it's going to happen on both sides. So I think there's going to be humans will change the way that they search, just like humans change the way they search. If you think about the first few times that you used a search engine and what you typed in, it was like idiotic compared to what you do now. Everybody knows how to work a search engine now. They know how to you know, search for the best price. So they know how to find something local by putting in the zip code or saying near me. Um, so the human behavior will change just like your behavior changed when you made queries or whatever on your phone. And then also though, the search engines will change to adapt to what humans end up wanting. That's my point with voice search not being adopted today is that it's not a good experience. I can't buy what I want. I can buy anything I want on my laptop in like two minutes. I can get it. I can't do that yet comfortably. I'm not comfortable. I'm sure early adopters do. They probably have no problem doing it at all, but I'm not one of them. So I think it's going to be both sides. I think humans will change how they search and what they're asking and what they're trying to do because they'll, they'll learn the, the game. And then search engines will adapt as well to make the experience better. And once that happens, though, I think sort of the sky's the limit. I do think that you and I in our lifetime will use voice search a lot more than we do today. Whether we're early adopters or not, I think we'll end up 
I just see that as inevitable almost. It's, it's, it's definitely going to be an easier path to get things done at some point in our future. And we'll probably end up using it. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes back down to, to the trust, right? Do, do, can the people mm-hmm. trust not only the technology to deliver the experience, but what are the companies doing with that data? I mean, we're hearing about those conversations all the time. I remember I was in the digital agency space back in the day when we first started building apps that actually could geolocate and people were freaking out. Like, I don't want, I don't want anybody to know where I'm at. And now yeah. you get pissed if your phone doesn't know where you are. When you say search, I, your a, I know. Like, what the hell? Why don't you know that I'm sitting in Salt Lake City at this cafe and I need to, you know, it's that kind of stuff. So I, have a, over I have a funny story about, about sort of uh, comfort levels and marketing applications. If you want to hear it, it's pretty short. Yeah, by all means, let's do it. So at Overstock, we were doing a lot of display advertising and we were also at the same time doing a bunch of personalization. So you come to the site and we show you the last products you clicked on and stuff like that. And I had this idea that if we bought display ads and we had the cookies set, it'd be the same thing as someone visiting overstock.com. So at the time it was double click and we were buying a lot. I mean, we had a lot of bad space with them. And I said, we'll, we'll still make the buy, but we don't want you to host it. We're going to host all the ads. And that enabled us to basically be able to serve up what are now very common, which is personalized recommendations and display ads. But we flipped it on. And so we're the very first company to do this. And I remember my mom calling and just freaking out. And she's like, I just went to Overstock and you're following me everywhere now. And it's really like disturbing. I was like, Oh God. (laughs) And then we heard a story about a guy that was living with his, you know, girlfriend and he had come to the site and started looking for engagement rings on a, on a shared computer. Oh, then soon to be fiance went on and was uh, around. So it got us in a lot of trouble. And, you know, now we just flipped it on. I mean, it was sort of a brash move that I think kind of jumped marketing technology forward, but it ended up having some consequences. But yeah, when you, when you see those ads, um, I'm unfortunately the person to blame to, to start. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, what I love is that we've gotten to the point where with some of this, where based on your search and the way you interact, you can actually do pre-targeting. So you based on, and I was, I was talking to the CMO over at Imperva and they're doing pre-targeting based on your profile and not to make everybody freak out about the, you know, 5,000 data points that Cambridge Analytica had on everybody, but you can literally start to predict what somebody's going to want. And that's extremely powerful from a marketing and a business standpoint. It is extremely uncomfortable when you realize just how much of your behavior has been mapped, quantified and measured. Yeah, it's crazy. I've kind of grown comfortable with it, but I know I totally, because it's what I worked in for a long time. But I totally understand people's fears. And I think it's to an extreme that people don't even can't even wrap their heads around Uh, the amount that like a Facebook or a a Google knows about you is almost more than like your family. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. All your darkest darkest (laughs) secrets. Um, It's kind of mind boggling. It is, it is pretty impressive. I could go on that topic for hours, man. There's that, uh, the, um, there was a documentary on Cambridge Analytica. I can't remember if it was Netflix that I saw on our prime or something where they dove into the data models that Cambridge was collecting and how they were cross-referencing search and Facebook activity with Instagram and all this. And they were, they were putting people in 
buckets to predict how they would vote. Obviously, they had a specific outcome that they were looking for, but the amount of data that they had on people, and they do this really cool thing in the documentary. Um, if, if the audience just searches for Cambridge Analytica documentary, I'm sure it'll come up, but they actually have scenes where somebody's walking, say, through a street in New York, and they overlay all of the data that is being put out by that person and collected as they're walking through the street using their phone, doing a search, you know, using an app, all of this stuff, posting on Instagram, all this stuff. And it's like, it's almost this endless stream of, you know, exactly what somebody's doing almost at every moment if they're interacting with the screen. And it's, it's really empowering, can be very empowering, but you also got to realize, I'm wondering if at some point it becomes a great equalizer. Like we all... All right, we all have freak flags and we all fly them in different ways. People will fly <laughs> the anonymity of, of the internet, right? But yeah. at the end of the day, it also sets kind of a baseline for what it means to be human. I, I think that's a great I, theory. I don't know why the hell I just got all existential on this. Let's. <laughs> I think that's a great theory. I'm like, you're blowing my mind right now. Uh, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's like. That's really a deep thought there. Really <laughs> deep deep thought, Chad. I'm, I'm into it, man. I'm into it. <laughs> no idea why the hell I went there. Okay. So let's change the direction <laughs> a little bit here. We ask all of our guests two standard questions towards the end of each interview. The first is simply as a CEO, as a co-founder, that makes you a prospect for other sales professionals. And I'm always interested to mm-hmm. learn... When somebody doesn't have a pre-existing relationship or an introduction into you where there's not a trusted channel to get to you, what have you found to be most effective in terms of people capturing your attention and earning the right to 15 or 30 minutes on your calendar? Yeah. So I've sat in the seat. I probably sat in the seat more at Overstock than I do today, but I definitely still sit in it today. And I think it's a genuine... It's a display of genuine interest to help someone. So you have a problem. I've, or I have a problem. The, the salesperson has knows about it and generally has a solution to make it no longer be a problem for me. And I, and it's also the, the way that they've crafted it shows me that they've really put thought into solving this problem for me. That's sort of a quick way to, to answer it. But that's, that's when, when you come to the table with something really cool that you've thought through and want to sincerely help me fix, you have a much higher chance of engaging with me than a cold email. So it's putting so the work in I, to know you, right? To put yourself, put themselves in your shoes, understand what problems you may actually be facing and not just blast you with some templated crap email. Yeah. And I can't say that we drink this Kool-Aid all that well, although we're getting better. I just think with the amount of inbound that any executive gets, it's much more about quality than it is about quantity. There's definitely the quantity aspect of sales, and I get that. But it's the quality touches that I think really get through, where someone has really thought something through. And they're sincerely like, from their seat, they're sincerely like, oh man, I really hope they don't do this. I really hope they do this. If they don't, I'm going to be kind of bummed out because they have a great opportunity here. Those touches can get through, I think, at a much higher rate. And and they end up being much more meaningful conversations too because you've already shown there's a level of trust going into the conversation that this person really sincerely wants to help me and is thinking about it in the right way. 
Yeah, 100% agree. 100% agree. All right. So last question, we call it our acceleration insight. If there's one thing you could tell sales, marketing, or professional services people, just one piece of advice that you give them that you believe would help them hit their targets or exceed them, what would it be and why? Well, on the whole, I think that, and I know this is a little bit self-promoting, but I honestly believe it, that organic search is way underinvested in compared to any sales or marketing channel, any, any sales or marketing effort. It is, and I think it's because it takes time and you don't get the immediate gratification of a paid search campaign or whatever you're doing paid wise. But I think that is companies that are reaping the rewards of, of money spent and people invested and time invested in SEO get such a huge benefit back in the long run that it's, it's just not even a fair fight. Um, <laughs> other than that, <laughs> I think um, the biggest recommendation is to get behind a product that you really believe in and that you think actually is changing companies and making things better. I, I think a lot of salespeople that I've come in contact with will take the best job at the company with the best reputation and you know the highest uh, sort of commission rates or whatever they're looking for. Instead of really thinking about, well, can I really believe in this product and sell it? And want to put you know five years of my life towards it instead of just a year or a year and a half and moving on. If you get behind something that you really believe in, it's so much easier to sell than if you're toting the latest CRM software or whatever it happens. <laughs> so uh, we yeah. find we're we're starting to build a reputation in Utah where we're attract like we've just got two of the top salespeople from Lucid, who's a bit of a unicorn here in, in Utah. And they, they're just like, well, I can actually believe in this. This is something that I can, I, all my contacts could use this and right. I firmly feel that they need to use it. And if they don't, I'll be bummed out because they won't get the leads or whatever that they deserve. So I think believing in something that, you know, get to know the product and, and make sure that you actually believe in it before you decide that you want to sell it. Cause, um, I see a lot of salespeople just selling stuff that they don't believe in at all. And it just doesn't go as easily as if they're actually have some skin in the game and are like, yep, this is what I want. This is what I'm, I'm supposed to be selling. Well, and you can tell, right? I mean, it comes across, I can't, I'm the type of guy where I'm, I'm an open book. Like if I'm trying to sell something I don't believe in, you're going to know it. You're going to sense it in the way I'm, you know, the energy level, the, the, the just all of it, you're going to sense it when somebody's passionate about something, it's easier to connect to. So I, I love that. Love that advice. So, okay. So if a listener wants to talk more about Huckabye or any of this topic SEO that we've touched on today, what method of communication would you prefer they use to get to you? Link LinkedIn, email, smoke signals. What are you feeling? <laughs> LinkedIn is great. It's Jeff with a G, G-E-O-F-F. -F. And then um, you can always just come to our site. It's getting a lot better to learn a little bit more about, about SEO and how Huckabye is approaching SEO and how we're a bit different and filling out contact us forms. I've made a, a promise to, to listeners on podcasts that if you, con you, know, you fill out a contact us and, and reach out and say you listen to the podcast, that I'll connect with you personally. So. Um, I think that's a night I've gotten a lot of great conversations out of these podcasts because people, I think learn a lot and they sort of, it, it opens their mind. And, uh, yeah, I'll just make that promise of course, to your audience that if you, if you come to our site, fill out a contact us, put my name in it, that you heard me on the podcast, I'll make sure to get in touch with you within 24 hours. Um, and you can have a conversation personally. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, Hey Jeff, I can't thank you enough for taking time to be on the show. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Chad. I'm actually like, 
we need to talk about sales because you certainly uh, know what you're talking about. So, and I love the uh, the honesty and open book. And I, I think you, you're on to something really special. So uh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. All right, everybody, that does it for this episode. You know the drill, b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, family, coworkers. Drop us a review on iTunes. And until next time, we at Value Selling Associates wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.